0: Go ahead take your Bibles, try to find Amos. <laughs> How was that for a kickoff? Good luck. Wave a white flag if you have trouble. No, if you would go ahead and turn to, uh, to Amos, that would be great. Um, if you're flipping through your Bible trying to find Amos and you're starting to see names of books of the Bible you don't recognize, that means you're close. So just keep going. You're going to get there, I promise. Amos, hey, and, and let, me, let me share something with you, not, not because, you know, this is particularly comfortable for me to share just because I found it humorous. So uh, last week, after the message, I uh, went home and, you know, did what the tailors do after a after message, after Sunday, is we have lunch together. That's our big dinner of the week. I mean, we eat the rest of the week together, but Sundays we have a big meal together, and we sat down together, and we began to eat, and uh, one of my children, who will remain unnamed, they're still recovering from punishment, no, I'm just kidding, um, looked at me and said, hey, Dad, do you realize something? You've been at, at Uniontown how long now? I'm like, oh, it's been almost what? 11 months, 10 months. He's like, yeah, yeah. You know how you encourage people to go grab Bibles? Yeah. I want them to have the Bible in their lap. He said, "You're right. You've told them to go grab the black Bibles in the back." I'm like, yeah. They're brown. <laughs> so, learn something new every week. If you would like a Bible, let me encourage you to go grab one in the back. It's brown in case you were wondering, <laughs> ah, kids, <laughs> I like the way that I can blame kids, um, Amos, uh, this morning again, like the, the rest of our series, of the Minor Prophets, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a lot, we're going to jump around a lot, I'm going to put a lot of scripture on the screen for you, um, it, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot. But I think there's one consistent message that we should walk away from this morning. So I'll start in chapter 1, which it seems to be a good place to start, right? Amos chapter 1, it says this in verse 1, the words of Amos who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa what he saw regarding Israel in the days of king Uzziah of Judah Jeroboam son of Jehoash king of Israel 2 years before the earthquake okay i'll stop there that is the context of the book of Amos we don't have much more we don't know much about this man Amos other than what this says he was a shepherd if you look in Amos chapter 7 in the little confrontation that occurs between he and uh, Amaziah Uh, You find that that, uh, Amos says to him, listen, I'm not a professional prophet. I didn't train for this. I didn't go to school for this. My daddy wasn't a prophet. My granddaddy wasn't a prophet. We're shepherds. That's what we do, except God called me, and so I'm following God's call, and I'm bringing this prophecy. So that's what we know about who Amos is. The time period, there's a lot of information around the year 750 BC, around there, uh, archaeological and historical, that points to a massive earthquake that occurred in this region. And so when, when Amos makes mention of the earthquake, there's no other context given, but we can assume that it was such a big event, well known by people, that they marked their calendars by how far removed they were from it. We're two years after the earthquake, so that kind of sets the, the very brief context. And this sets a greater context into the message of Amos in verse 2 when he says, This the Lord roars from Zion, and he makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. What we hear is, God roars like a lion. Something that um, um, I learned this week, and, and it's actually very helpful when you study um, particular prophecies, when you hear that God is roaring like a lion, what that means is judgment is imminent. When a lion roars, it's just before it goes after its prey. The, the idea, and many think that the reason a lion will roar just before it attacks its prey is because the, the sound of the roaring lion is so nerve-inducing that it paralyzes momentarily the prey just out of shock. And God roars and then begins to walk through all of Israel's neighbors and names judgments. And so he declares that there is going to be judgment for these people. Let's walk through it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in any of them, but I'm just going to kind of walk through all of them, read some of the verses there and and describe what's happening in there so you can get a, a feel for what Israel's dealing with. You start in verse 3 of chapter 1, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even for four. Why? Because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. The threshing was the the, the process of separating seed from stalk. And so that that process of threshing oftentimes would involve having the the, the stalk laid out on a, a stone floor and animals walking across the top of it, and that would separate the seed from it. Another way to speed up that process was to take um, um, sledges with iron spikes driven through it and and to beat the the stalk that would cause the, the seed to fall out of it a little faster. And so what he says is, Damascus, Syria, you will be judged because you threshed people. Particularly violent. God says in verse 4, I will send fire, I will consume the citadels, I will break down the gates, I will cut off the ruler. The Lord has spoken, the end of verse 5. Verse 6, you move on from Damascus and you go to Gaza. Their Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. So what was Gaza's great sin? The great sin of Gaza was capturing and selling a whole community of people, including women and children, to Edom. God says in verse 7, I will send fire, I will consume its citadels, I will cut off the ruler, I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. Remainder, sorry, remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. Moving on now from Gaza and Philistia, we go to Tyre. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four. Why? Because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Their great crime was they violated the treaty, captured and sold people that they violated into slavery. God says in verse 10, I will send fire against their walls and I will consume its citadels. Verse 11, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even for four. Why? Because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at them continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. So he's going to judge Edom, that's Esau's descendants, because of the way they treated Israel, which is Jacob's descendants. And he says the reason they're going to be judged is because of the anger and the rage and the violence that, that Edom um, practiced against their brother. So, so think about this. Guys, you will you, remember this. If you had um, a younger sibling, a younger male sibling that you grew up with, you got a little brother at home, and you guys get wrestling and going, and even if he makes you really, really, really mad, not that that ever happens, ever, and it's like you you wind up and you're ready to let go. And as you get ready, there's there's this thing in you, like it's my brother. I'm still going to deck him, but I'm not going to deck him quite so hard. There's this, ugh, ugh, ugh. it's that compassion of being a brother wells up within you. And what what Amos is saying is, I'm sorry, but Edom, that compassion is completely lacking in your life. You are relentless in your pursuit of destroying your brother Israel. Verse 13, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even for four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. The Ammonites are going to be judged because they sought to extend their borders, and in trying to extend their borders, they decided that they would act violently, specifically against pregnant moms and unborn children. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even for four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So, so what does that mean? So, so there's a battle, there's a, a, a conflict uh, between Moab and Edom. And, and the Moabites dug up the, the, the remains of a king and they took the remains of the king and they burned it to the place where it was dust and then they used it for lime, whether it be in their gardens or wherever you would have it, it didn't matter. The point was they, 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 they acted in such a way that was defiling the king. Gets to Judah, the sister of Israel, in verse 4, the Lord says, <clears throat> excuse me, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even for four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. Their lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Says, I'm going to I'm going to reject Judah. I'm going to judge Judah because they rejected the law of God and they followed after the lies of false worship. So, so just a recap, the, the nations that God has gone after now in this prophecy is Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and Judah. Okay, so numerology is usually a bunch of bunk. Just going to throw that out there, okay? Garbage. Oh, well, I see this number, and so that represents no. However, in the Hebrew society, seven was a number of completion. Israel had to have been elated that they were going to get judged. All of our surrounding enemies, they're going to get judged. Look what God's going to do to them. And seven, it's complete. There it is. Yeah, and they're doing their little happy dance, right? Here it Come, God's gonna judge them. God's gonna judge, can't wait till God judge them. And, and it reminds me of the proverb that says, don't gloat or when, when your, your enemy fails, don't rejoice when your enemy stumbles. Or even 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, it says, hey, babe, oh, take heed, pay attention, lest you be the one that falls. So, so let, me, let me throw this at you. This, this feeling of Israel, of being able to see their enemies judged is about to flip-flop to the exact opposite feeling in your heart. So I know we have a number of police officers with us. We love you. We appreciate you. So, so let, me, let me just share a little illustration about police officers and you. It's a completely different feeling when you're in traffic and this maniac is like, ring, ring, in and out around you. And then all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and you see the blue lights turn on. And you're like, yes, he's going to get them. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And you're gloating or you're bragging to your son who happens to be in the car with you and his two friends. Yeah, did you see that? Yeah, that guy's gonna get it. Yeah, and then all of a sudden the emotion changes suddenly. Whoop, whoo, whoo. Oh, you gotta be kidding me, me? Oh, what did I do? I, oh, yeah. Right? Israel's looking at God's judgment on all of their neighbors, all of their enemies, and like, yes! We must be careful not to celebrate when the day of the Lord comes for someone else. Let me throw this verse up here in front of you. Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, it says this. And what sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you're wishing for. The day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, let me let me explain to you what the day of the Lord's going to be like. In that day, you'll be like a man who runs from a lion, only to meet a bear. Okay, let me stop there. I'm going to continue in a second, but but let me. So so this is what the day of the Lord is like. You are out, uh, you're on Uniontown Road, and this lion shows up, and it looks hungry. It's acting hungry, and it roars. And you're paralyzed in fear for a moment, Uh, and then you run, and you run like you've never run before, and you're running for a long time, and you escape the lion. You're like, oh, finally, and you go into a barn, and you close the barn door, and then you know what happens? Roar! There's a bear. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, it's funny, the verse doesn't end. You escape from the bear, and you get home, and you lean your hand on the wall in the house, and a snake bites you. So if you run from the lion, you hide it, and then the bear shows up. You're like, oh, a bear! And you run away from the bear, and you finally outrun the bear, and you get home, you're like, honey, you're not going to believe the day I've had. Ow! You ever had a day like that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 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 See, the day of the Lord is going to be like that. You rejoice in it, and then... See, the the judgment isn't just for them. The judgment is for you. While you're so busy looking at the shortcomings of everybody else, you're looking at the sinfulness of everybody else, God's got a message for you. Chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even for four, Because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. Because they trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. And they obstruct the path of the needy. Because a man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning my holy name. Because they stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. And in the house of their God, they drink wine that has been obtained through fines. So, so what God says is, I'm going to judge you, Israel. And what we get from that passage of, of God listing out why he's going to judge Israel, we see that, that, that they're taking advantage and they're even oppressing the needy people who are among them. I mean, they're, they're trading somebody for a pair of shoes. Now, now some people think that that um, verse 6, where it talks about selling a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals, they think that that is talking about bribery in the court system. And that very well could be, but regardless, it doesn't really matter. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're establishing a very low cost on human life. And, and let me encourage you, man. You, you, you study history, and you look at the sinfulness of humanity, and, and woven into the history and the sinfulness of humanity, you will always find the devaluing of human life. God says, I have that against you, Israel. I have the fact that you are treating the poor like dirt when he says just stepping on your heads in the dust. I have that against you. I have the fact that you are sexually abusing a slave girl in your home. I have that against you. I have against you the fact that you are violating the very ethics regarding debt which, which that's subtle to us, but to, to Israel it would have been pretty significant. If you look at verse 8, it talks about they're stretching out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. So, so the rules regarding debt in the Old Testament, both in, in Exodus chapter 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 24, makes mention of the fact that if you are, are lending somebody money and you take from them a poor person as collateral, you take from them their garment, when the night gets cool you need to return it to them because that's the only thing they have to keep them warm. And yet these people have thrown it out on the ground and made themselves comfortable on it. See, God says, I have judgment for you because you're taking advantage of and even oppressing the needy among you. One of the more insensitive verses in Amos is here. I'll throw it on the screen for you. Amos chapter four, verse one, where it says this. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan. Let me stop there. Amos isn't talking about the cattle. You'll see who he's talking about in a moment. I will not apologize for me, but maybe on Amos's behalf, I apologize for his insensitivity. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria. Women who are oppressing the poor and crushing the needy, who continue to say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. Amos calls these women cows. I mean, it's pretty offensive today. It was violently offensive back then and his complaint against them was and it's kind of subtle in our English versions when you see these women who say to their husbands we get the idea of hey I said it once but that's not the the way the Hebrew language works there it's it's repeatedly saying over and over and over again and so the picture is a woman who is sitting in her comfy chair nagging her husband saying hey bring me something to drink Amos chapter 5, verse 10, they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. They despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact a grain tax from him, you are never going to live in the houses of cut stone that you have built. You'll never drink the wine from the lush vineyards that you have planted. I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, they take a bribe, They deprive the poor of justice at the gates. The gates would be where minor court cases were handled and heard. Amos chapter eight, verse four, he says, listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy, this is how bad you are. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You're sitting in church, and when your mind wanders, not if your mind wanders, when your mind wanders, going to be honest, mine even wanders while I'm speaking to you, and that terrifies me. Have you ever had that happen? You're having a conversation, you're thinking about something else, I've had that happen. It's like, Lord, help me control that because who knows? I'll start talking about patriots or something, and people will get up and just leave. Um, he says, listen, you're sitting in your church services, your mind is wandering, and what you're wandering to is, man, how how can I make a quick buck? <laughs> you measure out the grain with dishonest measures. You cheat the buyer. With with dishonest scales, and you mixed the green the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for a piece of silver or a pair of sandals. And Israel asks, how could the God possibly judge us? So, so, so God, in effect, says to his people, how dare you? How, how, how could you? Don't, don't you understand that you are oppressing people who are just like you? You're oppressing people who are weak, who are unable to do anything on their own. Now, look, go back to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Let's, let's take a look at what God has done for these very weak Israelites. Chapter 2, verse 9. God reminds the Israelites of, of how ridiculous it is that they're oppressing these poor and needy. He says in verse 9, I destroyed the Amorites as Israel advanced. His height, talking about the Amorites, was like cedars. He was as sturdy as the oaks, and I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt, and I led you for 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite." and I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. God says, how quickly have you forgotten? It was me, your God, who brought you into the promised land and defeated the giants that were there. Do you remember that? Twelve spies go in, they come back and ten are like, yeah, these guys are huge, we're out. But two, Joshua and Caleb are like, God called us, let's go, we can do this. Now, a few years transpired before they actually went in due to decisions that were made. And they went into the promised land and and as as Amos even says, the Amorites were huge, their height was like the cedars and he was as sturdy as the oaks, but God went with them and God defeated the Amorites. Egypt, Egypt, That was interesting. Egypt. uh, I'm going with my Italian dialect today. (laughs) Egypt, it it held you, right? Egypt held you captive, held you slave. You were were held back and yet I released you. Wilderness, I know it was hard to walk through the wilderness for all that time, but the whole way, we talked about last week, the whole way we went, I was with you, I led you, I provided for you. I wanted you to know me and so... So I've raised up leaders from among you. And verse 11 is is stark, man. You don't ever want God saying this to you. Isn't that true? Didn't I? Didn't I do that for you? But you, Israel, forced your spiritual leaders to say what you wanted them to say and do what you wanted them to do. Instead of allowing them to bring the message that God had laid on their hearts. So judgment is coming. So look at verse 13, chapter 2. God talks about how there is no escape. Verse 13: Look, I'm about to crush you in your place, like a wagon crushes when full of grain. An escape. It's going to fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who's swift of foot cannot save himself. The one riding a horse will not even save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. I don't know how you keep score, but if you're ever in a fight and you run away naked, you've lost There is no situation where that's a win. Okay? God says, this is what's going to happen. Judgment is certain. There will be no escape. It's complete. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear out of the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord is sworn by his holiness. Look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. pretty severe, isn't it? Why? I mean, obviously they sinned, they're oppressing the poor, they're oppressing the needy, but, but, but why did it get ramped up so fast? Uh, I think so fast is a bit generous. Chapter four, verse six, we're told that God has tried to get their attention five times. Start reading in verse six. He says this, I gave you Absolutely nothing to eat in all of your cities. A shortage of food in all of your communities. Yet, you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but they still weren't satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and with mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, yet you didn't return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you didn't return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. And yet you didn't return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Five times. Five significant events. And no movement. The children of God, towards God. And so God continues in verse 12 and says, Therefore, Israel, because of that, that's what I'm going to do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He's here. The one who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of armies, is his name. Prepare to meet him. That's a powerful challenge. Be ready. Be ready. You're going to meet him. Be prepared. What's amazing is in the midst of God calling them to repentance and being so very clear about how patient he's been with them up to this point, what happens is the Israelites run back to their religious lifestyle. Chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tenths every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and, and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. He says, listen, listen this is, you you really do enjoy the, the formal religiosity. You really do love the, the formal worship. You You love to sacrifice daily. You love to tithe every three days. You love to give thank offerings. And then you love to advertise these special free will offerings. But how does God feel about those? Chapter 5, verse 21. And this is where we'll land for today. God says this. I hate. I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. How does God feel about them running back to their formal religion what what he says is, I will no longer be able to put up with the nauseating smell. He blocks his nose. The stench of your offerings nauseates me. I'll no longer be able to view your fellowship offerings. I can't see them anymore. I will not look at them anymore. I don't want to hear your music, your singing, your songs, your harps anymore. It's, it's, it's repulsive to me. It makes my skin crawl. So imagine for a moment, and some of you don't have to imagine, and I, I'm going to apologize to you for that, but imagine for a moment working on a project in elementary school, being all excited about being able to bring it home to mom or to dad. Maybe, maybe it's just one of those, those crazy little you know, the Dixie cup with a little daisy inside of it. And somehow that little bugger survives the bus ride home and comes running up to mom and dad like, here, let me give this to you. Imagine mom being like, yeah, whatever. Or dad taking it and just being like. <clears throat> the difference is the child who comes home with the daisy has a pure heart and he simply wants to please mommy or daddy. The Israelites, on the other hand, were wearing their formal religion as a mask to try to hide from God. And I think somewhere in Scripture it says something about, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. You will never fool God. You will never hide from God. See, the the indictment against the Israelites is clear. They had become so very religious that they'd forgotten what true religion is. They were so good at the formal gathering and the worship and the the, the meetings and the feasts and the tithes and the thank offerings and the fellowship offerings. They were so very good at that, and yet they walked on top of those who were in great need around them. So what God wants, as we study the book of Amos, what, what we find is that what God wants is the way that you live outside of worship Where you work, where you live, the school you go to, when you're in traffic, when you're all alone, doesn't matter. He wants wants all of your life to be soaked with justice and righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 24. As opposed to all these formal religious offerings that God was being nauseated by, he says, instead, do this, verse 24. Instead, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. May may, may justice just continue to drench us and righteousness continue to overwhelm us. So so we need to define a couple of key terms here. So what does it mean to be righteous? To be be righteous means to have a, a favorable standing before God due to no act of your own. So to be righteous is, is to understand that you have a tremendous problem and it's called sin. Because we've all sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. And, 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 and that, that sin problem does not go unnoticed by God. He is going to judge sin. He is going to pour wrath out on sin. So that sin problem does not go unnoticed by God, but, but neither does the fact that you and I are unable to do anything about our own sin problem because God looked at us in the midst of our, our sin problem and He loved us. He didn't just have warm, mushy feelings about us, folks. That's not love. Love produces action. And so God loved us and sent his son. And so what, what righteousness is, is it's, it's a, a state of being that we achieve when we recognize that anything we do to try to achieve it nauseates God. It's a state of being that is given to us when we understand that we need a greater righteousness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. So, so righteousness, and to be soaked in righteousness, is to understand that before Jesus Christ, you were the one in great need, and yet Jesus is a great savior, and so now he has produced a righteousness in you, he has given it to you, he has credited it to your account, so now you stand before God, and we talked about this a lot, accepted, justified and righteous to be soaked in righteousness is to out of out of love and appreciation for what god has done for you in jesus christ to deal honestly with each person having a spirit of mercy and generosity as we imitate god's character Justice is to seek fairness for the less fortunate. It's to demonstrate dignity and compassion for the needy. So what was happening in the context here in Amos is is a formalistic worship. It was a 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Or if you attend our 1045 service, an 1115 a.m. to 1 o'clock. That'll go better in second service, I promise. That'll kill. That joke will just kill. (laughs) The, the, The formalism... What was simply that mask. And so th- what they would do is they would run to that religious activity thinking that it was an acceptable substitute for true religion, and it is not. So, Uniontown, we must be careful to not allow good things to become an acceptable substitute true religion. That includes worship. Don't, don't, don't lean on your attendance as a way to trick people or worse, as a way to try to trick God into thinking you're religious. God sees through that mask. Now live a life that is soaked in righteousness and in justice. That includes the let me, let me be careful here. Be careful how I say this. There's great momentum at Uniontown Bible Church. There's fantastic momentum. It's not, oh, we're a wonderful church. It's not that. It's, what we're seeing happen is, is a little uh, momentum building up from within the congregation. It's not staff-led, elder-led, pastor-led. It's, it's, it's the people who call Uniontown home are getting enthusiastic and excited about certain things, and so they're, they're running. So let me, let me encourage you. Don't stop that momentum. Do not hear what I am about to say as, hey, we, we shouldn't do any of those things. That is not what I'm saying. Let's keep going on those things, okay? But let's be careful to not allow those things to become an incomplete redemption. See, see part of the problem is is if we focus so much on simply clothing somebody or feeding somebody or providing for somebody's financial needs and stop there, that's incomplete redemption. I was reminded this this morning, actually, worst idea ever. I was driving in listening to a podcast, which is terrible because I've already got this in my head, and I'm listening to a podcast like, that would all fit in here, and so I'm all over the map. But, But this point was made, and it's exactly right, out of Hebrews chapter 12, There's a picture of of the the author of Hebrews saying, let aside, let's lay aside every weight, every sin that continues to trip us up. Incomplete redemption stops there. See, incomplete redemption brings us to the point where we're ready to shed those things that are sin and weight, and then we talk about how we have gotten rid of those things. That's incomplete redemption. Complete redemption is when that loop finishes, where we lay aside every weight and we fix our eyes on Jesus. So what must happen is, yes, this momentum's great, we must continue to go face first into it, but we must remember that as God's church, we are called as ambassadors of complete redemption, ambassadors of the gospel, so that everything we do points to the one who loved us and laid down his life for us. You can clap on your drink. The problem is, I think, for many of us, we're good at the safe stuff. We're really good at the safe stuff. God has called us to be drenched, soaked with righteousness and justice. So this is not a time where we preach and say, all right, Uniontown, we need to add all of these different compassion ministries to go out. No, 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 no. it's you. You, one, you. Are you living a life that is so religious or are you living a life of true religion? You remember what true religion is as God defined it in James chapter 1, Religion that is true, that is pure, that is undefiled before God the Father is this. You visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's justice. That's caring for and loving people who could never pay you back. Is that how you live your life? Who? I mean, it's easy to say, yep, that's how I live my life. No, 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 no. Who? There must be a name attached to that. Who? Then the righteousness is tied into it at the end where it says we also keep ourselves unstained from the world. Who are you loving you can't, that can't pay you back? Who are you sacrificing time, energy, and effort for that can't possibly return that? Be the church. Right? And Amos is saying, be the church, not in this three-hour window. Be this church as we walk off this hill. May we be a people. May you be a person who is soaked with justice and righteousness. May God help it be so. Father God, I thank you for this morning and, and I praise you for your word. I thank you that you put things in your word that make us so incredibly uncomfortable and then we have to deal with it. I thank you that you, you pull no punches. You, you hide nothing from us. You are clear and you're direct that we are a hopeless mess when we try to do things on ourselves. But you, <laughs> you're amazing. And time and time again, you demonstrate your amazingness your power, your might in using the weak to serve you. Lord, I thank you for the many opportunities you've given to us. May we be faithful with them. God, I I pray. I pray that each one of us would be committed to being drenched in justice and righteousness as we leave this place, that, that we would be the church. It's in the name of the one who saved us and made us his own, I pray. Amen.